for being our family in this. Um, we've gotten a lot of prayers in person and also a lot of prayers from a distance, we know. So thank you for being a Christ-centered family. Um, also, please, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And keep praying. Uh, keep praying for us as we grieve, but I also want to ask you to pray uh, for this little girl. Um, her name's Lucy. That's what we were calling her. Um, and keep praying for her, uh, because our adoption journey is going to continue uh, at some point. We don't know what that's going to look like or when exactly. Uh, we're going to take some time to get back on our feet here, but her journey is just starting in life. Um, she is born already, and she is living, and she is out there. So pray for her. Pray God's protection over her uh, and her birth mom as well. And actually, one of the things I needed this week, which I didn't know I needed, was the passage that I had chosen for this week before getting the call on Tuesday. And it's Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. So go ahead and open up your Bibles there. Um, I think the reason I needed this passage is is not necessarily because it's a passage of lament. It's not. Uh, It's not a passage that talks about mourning or grief at all, in fact. It's, It's a passage that talks about and focuses on the greatness of God. You know, I grew up in, uh, in the suburbs of a major city, Houston, Texas, the fourth biggest city in the entire nation. And I remember a, a number of occasions, my friends and I, we'd climb up on the roof of one of my friend's houses. And because Houston is so incredibly flat, you could just see Houston all the way off in the, in the distance, even though it was an hour away. No trees, no mountains. <laughs> you could see that far. And the thing that I remember about living in the suburbs of Houston is up on that rooftop, or really wherever you are, if you look to the east of where we lived, we lived west of Houston, so if we look to the east, we could see a big semicircular glow in the sky at night. Throughout the entire night, the entire sky to the east of us was brighter than this darker sky to the west of us. The reason being, the lights of the city glowed, made the sky glow. And that sounds kind of cool, except for the fact that you can't see the stars, You can see a few stars, uh, some of the brightest stars. You might be able to see the Big Dipper stars, uh, but you couldn't see 90% of the stars that you can see here if you walk outside at night. I just remember one night I was at scout camp in Colorado, and we were at a campfire, and I was walking back to my tent at the end of the night, and I looked up into the sky, and for the first time in my life, I beheld the beauty of the Milky Way galaxy. The fact that the sky doesn't only contain 10, 12 13 stars, but actually contains millions, numerous stars. And I just remember in that moment seeing that and feeling like a speck on a ball in the middle of nothing. (laughs) I remember feeling so incredibly small and at the same time stopping to recognize that the God whom, whom I believed in, the God who I trusted, is the God who made all those things. When we see the stars and the beauty of nature, it reminds us of two things. First, how small we are, and secondly, how big God is. And in Psalm chapter 8, that's what David sees. I like to imagine that David is up on the rooftop of his house or maybe out in a field and looking up at the stars and being struck by how small he is, how big God is, and also how amazing God's perfect grace is. And we'll see how he gets there by looking at Psalm chapter 8. So please do open up your Bibles there. Psalm chapter 8. I'll read it and we'll pray. Psalm chapter 8. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. And still, the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pause and pray. Father, you are the God who created the heavens. You are the God who created the earth. You are the God who created everything. And you are the God who created us. And Father, when we look at creation, we see what the psalm is telling us clearly. That you are so great. That we are so small. And that your love for us, your grace towards us is so amazing. You are great. We are small. Your grace is amazing. And so, Father, I pray that as we dive into this passage, those three truths would be impressed upon our hearts again. That we would leave today believing those things a little bit more fully. Uh, Leave today a little bit more committed to live in your service for your honor, joyfully. And, Father, that we would be just that much more in awe of the God that we serve. So, Father, change us, even if it's just incrementally today. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now if I read those first two verses and you're thinking to yourself, man, this sounds like it's going to be pretty similar to all the other passages we've looked at over the last couple weeks. Well, good, you've been paying attention. Because we were in Psalm 113 a couple weeks ago. God is high, yet he is near to us. Psalm 90, he is eternal. We are not. Psalm 139, God knows us intimately. Psalm 115, God is worthy of trust and praise. And now here we see God's glory and his strength. God's glory and his strength are the two things on display in this passage. First is glory. Glory is a word that we use when we talk about God. It's hard to know exactly what it means. Here's a brief Attempt at a definition. God's glory is the display of his infinite goodness. The display of his infinite goodness. The showing, the pouring out of his perfect beauty, of his measureless greatness. In other words, when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about the fullness of who he wonderfully is. It cannot be described. It is the fullness of the God of the universe. And so this passage, what it says is that God's glory is above the heavens, meaning that he reigns over all things, even the heavens. He reigns over it all in perfect beauty and power. Our God is awesome, and he is over all. That's the first thing we need to see here. And the second word is strength. His glory and his strength. We know what strength is. It's, it's might. It's power. This is what David says in verse 2. 
It says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. What, what he's really saying there is, God, you are so strong that you can use the weakest of us. You can use babies. You can use infants. You can use weaklings, God, to do your work. You can even use them to still the enemy and the avenger. What he's saying is, God, your might is not dependent upon the strength of your servants. God, it's your might that accomplishes your will. You don't need us to accomplish it. You are the strong one. You are the mighty one. You are the powerful one. So we can summarize the entire first two verses just by saying this. Look, God is great. But that's not the end of the passage. Because the first two verses really, they just, they just lay a foundation for us that David is going to continue to build on in the next couple verses. So let's read verses 3 and 4 now. And remember this. God has just been described as the God whose glory is above the heavens. Now we read, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. So about six years ago, I started a new hobby. Um, I started carving things by hand. And obviously at first, when you do something new, you're pretty bad at it. Um, and I remember carving, uh, I, I tried to carve a chess set out of a little, out of pine dowels. Um, I started trying to carve little animals out of old boards that I could find around, uh, little figurines out of, out of branches. But a lot of what I made was, was spoons. I don't know why, that's just what you carve when you start learning to carve. Um, and I started progressing in it, started getting a little better. My handles got a little more straight, the bowls got a little more even. I thought I was doing pretty well. Until I found some pictures on the internet of an artist named Julian Watts. I'm going to put the picture up here on the screen of what Julian Watts carves. These are spoons, kind of. He's taken the word spoon to a whole new level. When you look at these, I'm amazed by these spoons, uh, partially because of the fact that, you know, I've, I've carved myself and I understand how hard it is just to do a simple, even bowl. But look what this guy does. I'm amazed by them because, you know, I, I think they're beautiful At the same time, I'm amazed by them because even though wood is a solid thing, he makes them look pliable somehow, you know, almost like they're they're molded out of clay. But when I marvel at these spoons, I'm not just marveling at the spoons. I'm marveling at the carver of the spoons. I'm not just marveling at the thing that was created. I'm marveling at the person who created them. Because these spoons, they didn't create themselves. The carver did. It's his skill. It's his creativity that turned a tree into that. And so when I marvel at them, I'm actually marveling at him. When I marvel at the creation, I'm marveling at the creator. It's his skill, it's his talents, it's his creativity that are on display in what he made. Now, in, in verse 3 here, David, he's not marveling at, the sp- at a spoon. He's marveling at the moon. He's marveling at the stars. He's marveling at the heavens. And when David looks at the heavens, what he says to himself, in, to put it colloquially, is, wow. <laughs> wow, God. Your creation is amazing. He's marveling at the moon. He's marveling at the stars. But he's actually marveling at the maker. He's marveling at the one who used his fingers to put those things in place. He's marveling at the one who created all of it. 
In other words, David was doing there in the field or on his housetop or wherever he was, the same thing that I did in that field in Colorado. He is looking up at the sky and saying, wow, God, not just that is awesome, but wow, God, you are awesome. He's doing the same thing that we all do every year when the fall colors turn. We say, wow, God, not just that is beautiful, but wow, God, you are beautiful. He's doing the same thing we do every time we go on a hike and we come up above the tree line. He's doing the same thing we do every winter morning when we walk outside on a sunny day after a midnight blizzard and the entire world shines brightly at us. We say, wow, God, that is awesome because, wow, God, you are awesome. What you're doing is you're marveling at the creation, but at the same time, you're marveling at the creator who made the creation with his fingers and put everything in place. And you know, I don't care how highly somebody thinks about themselves. But when you stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon, or when you look up at the stars at a pitch black night, or you stand at the foot of a 20-story high waterfall, you can't help but feel small, 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 small in comparison to what you're seeing. And so here David stands, taking in the Milky Way. And he's struck by how great his God is. And at the same time, he's struck at the amazing gulf that stands between him and God. He's struck by how great God is. And he's struck by the gulf that stands between the God of the universe and him. And his amazement flows out of himself when he says, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. David is seeing God is great, and yes, the gulf between us is great too. In other words, God, why do you give a rip about me? Why do you care for me? In light of who you are and what you've done and what you've made, God, why are you mindful of me? That's a good question. It's a question we're going to hold on to for a minute. I'm not going to answer it right now. But rather, let's read the rest of this psalm, verses 5 through 9. And then we'll turn around and ask that question again. Verse 5. God, you are great. The gulf is great. Verse 5. Yet you have made him, made man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In all the earth. If we could summarize these last five verses, I think we could do it in three words. Yet you do. God, you are great. The gulf between us is great. Why do you love us? Yet you do. David is amazed here because God's favor does fall upon us, even though he can't answer the question why. God's favor falls upon us, and he lists out the ways that he does that. He sets us above his created things. He crowns humans with glory and honor. He's given us dominion over the works of his hands, all of creation, and he puts all the beings of creation under our feet. Sheep, oxen, beasts, birds, fish, all the things in the ocean, all this he has put under his feet. So he marvels at that, and then he pours out praise one more time at the end, echoing the same words that he started this whole thing with, saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
The point of Psalm chapter 8 is this. God is great. The gulf between God and us is great. And his grace is great. God is great. The gulf between us and him is great. And his grace for us is great. (laughs) I love this passage because God is so big in it and we are so small in it. But the thing that I love most about this passage is what we see in verse 5. Because in verse 4, David asks a really good question. God, who am I? Who are we that you would care for us, God? What, who are we that you would be mindful of us, that you would fix your eyes on us at all? And what I love about this psalm is that we never get an answer. There's no answer to the question here. God, why do you care? Why are you mindful? Why do you give a rip about us? No answer. The only answer we're given is that he does. And that's actually some really good news. Because I'm sure we can come up with a lot of reasons why we love the people we love, right? I can, I can tell you reasons why I love my wife. But the reality is my wife can change. I can say to Olivia, I love you because you are beautiful. And I think she is beautiful. But as we know, the beauty of youth fades in time. Does that mean my love is going to fade? It's scary to think that God might love us for a reason that he sees in us. Because we change. The good news is God doesn't change. And the blessings that God pours out on us is not dependent on what he sees in us. It's dependent on who he is. Not who we are, but upon who he is. And so why does God love us? Why does God pour out blessings upon us? I think we can boil down the answer into one word. The answer is grace. Grace is unearned kindness. It's undeserved blessing. It's unwarranted love. Many people say it's unmerited favor. Grace is something that we don't earn. Grace is by definition a gift. It's something that's given to us that we just humbly receive. Grace is the opposite of a paycheck. A paycheck is something that we get when we earn it, but grace is something that's given to us that we could never earn. Grace is the opposite of the idea of of karma. Karma is that you get what you deserve. Grace is that you are given what you could never deserve. God is great. The gulf is great. But the reason why God cares for us and is mindful of us and pours out his blessings upon us is because his grace is great too. He gives us not what we deserve, but what he by nature gives. All his blessings poured out to us are purely by grace. And God's grace for us, it is shocking, right? It's something that we think about, we can't fully wrap our minds around. Actually, we can barely wrap our minds around it, and it shocks us. But at the same time, I I almost want to say, though it shocks us, it also shouldn't surprise us. At least not anymore. Yes, it should shock us that our God would love us like this, that he would pour out his grace like this on us. But it shouldn't surprise us because this is who our God is. It shouldn't surprise us because this is who he's always been. (laughs) We can look through the history of his interactions with humanity and just recognize, wait a second, this is par for the course. (laughs) The fact that he loves us is not based upon who we are. It's based upon who he is. 
And so we can look right back to the beginning of creation, right back to his interactions with the very first beings, and recognize that it was purely by grace that God created Adam and Eve, poured his love out upon them, and breathed life into them. It was purely by grace that once he said, on the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die, he didn't execute that punishment upon them, but rather put it off and gave them clothes and kids and a full life. It was purely by grace that God did not wipe out humanity when they sinned with the flood, but preserved for himself a people through Noah and then promised that he'd never do it again. It was purely by grace that he called an idolater named Abraham and promised that he would give him a land and descendants that would make a great people and that he would bless the nations through those people. It was purely by grace that God rescued Abraham's descendants from a plague by bringing them to Egypt. And it was purely by grace that God rescued those descendants again by raising up a man named Moses and delivering them from Egypt. It was purely by grace that God entered into a covenant relationship with these people at Sinai, promising that he would be their God and that they would be his people, that he would never leave them. And then declaring to them his name, saying that I am the Lord, the Lord, a a God merciful and, here it is, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's purely by grace that he led them in the wilderness for 40 years, giving them food and water. It was purely by grace that he brought them into the promised land, defeating their enemies before them. It was purely by grace that he rose up judges to deliver the people of Israel over and over and over again when there was no king. And it was purely by grace that he did eventually bring them a king. It was purely by grace that he has been slow to anger for generation after generation after generation. And he warned them continually through the mouth of prophets, calling them back to the relationship that he's given them with him. It's purely by grace that he used pagan kings once they were in exile to bring them back to the promised land. And it was purely by grace that 500 years later, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become a man. It was purely by grace that Jesus took on flesh that he was born in a barn, experienced all the sufferings and the discomforts and the temptations that we face, lived a perfect life, bore our sins, died in our place, paying the debt, and ushered in the kingdom of God so that we could join in him in his eternal resurrection life. Be free. It's purely by grace that he formed his church And then called you and me to himself, so that by faith we could gain access to the life that is ours in him. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And be free, it's purely by grace that he cares about our adoption following through. It's purely by grace that he cares that you haven't touched your grandkids in seven months. It's purely by grace that he is going to stay near you when things continue not to go the way you expect them to go. And it's purely by grace that when you pray about those things, he's going to listen. It's purely by grace that he continues to love you and walk with you. It's purely by grace that he's going to continue to use the people of this church to walk alongside one another. It's purely by grace that we have any hope at all in him. He has given us all this in him by grace. And someday be free. It's going to be purely by grace that he will come again to make all things new, bringing in the fullness of his kingdom. God didn't do any of that because of what you offered. None of it. 
God did all those things, is doing all those things, and will do all those things because of who he is. That's grace. Our God is great. The gulf is great. And God's grace for us is still greater. Be free, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, if we think that we have earned your love, all of a sudden we diminish how amazing your grace is. You don't love us because we did anything. You, you love us because you are a God of grace and love and patience and mercy, God. You, lo- you love us because you chose to love us. You sent us Jesus because in your grace you chose to send him. You offer us life, Lord, because in your grace you decided to offer it. You gave it because of who you are. And so, Father, we praise you for that. Help us remember in the moments when we're tempted to forget it, God, that you don't love us because of what we've ever done, anything that we could ever offer. Lord, you, you, you love us because you're a God of love. So, Father, we reach out and we receive that love. We receive that grace. We humbly acknowledge that we can't do anything to make you love, care for us anymore. You just do. And Father, we pray that you would give us the endurance to walk holding tightly to that grace. Give us that strength by your grace. We pray all these things, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.